Hello, and welcome to the Meals with the Master podcast. Are you tired and fed up of the same old, same old religion? Do you know that Jesus himself is pursuing you? He knows you. He is in love with you. He wants an intimate and personal relationship with you, and he wants to spend time with you. We live in the land of plenty, yet we are starving. We are kept busy by every activity known to man, yet we are always craving more and more and never satisfied. That is because that hunger can only be satisfied in God alone. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be satisfied. When you come to his table, you will discover he is able to do more than you can ask or imagine. He is able to save you, establish you, keep you from falling, present you without fault, and make all grace abound toward you. He is able to deliver you and protect you. And everything in this meal has been made available to you and me free of charge, paid for by the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Talk about good news. Join us each week as we share real-life encounters with Jesus and chew on the Word of God one-on-one with our Savior. If you are hungry and thirsty to really know Him, or if you struggle with understanding the Bible, the greatest love letter of all, then this podcast is for you. No need to dress up, just come to the table just as you are and have a meal with the Master. Hello and welcome to the Meals with the Master podcast. We're so glad that you have joined us today. This week, the message is entitled, Love Locked. I was recently reading an article about the Pont d'Art Bridge in Paris, which is more commonly known as the Love Lock Bridge. And it's where people around the world have come to express their love for their partner by clipping a padlock on the railing and then throwing the key into the Seine River below. The legend goes that a woman who lost her love during World War I began placing padlocks on the bridges where they would meet. The locks were symbolic of her unbreakable love. But in 2014, the love locks on the Pont d'Art Bridge were estimated to weigh a staggering 50 tons and even caused a portion of the bridge to collapse. So they had to cut off the locks. The fact that so many couples believe in this tradition reveals the deep longing that we have as human beings for the assurance that our love is secure. The Bible is like a padlock, expressing the unbreakable love of God for mankind. In Ephesians 1.13, it states that we are marked with the seal of God's Holy Spirit. To be marked by God's love is permanent. Christ's Spirit, living in us, demonstrates God's eternal and committed love for His children. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and he not only saved us and forgave us of our sin, but securely sealed us as his promised possession. He sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts as a pledge and a guarantee, kind of like a divine receipt, that his promises to all of his blood-bought children can never be broken. You know, we live in a very unpredictable and unstable world. And God's great desire for his people is that we would feel secure in his love and in his power. When we place our security in anything other than God, get ready to be challenged because God continually brings us back to himself. 
as the only true assurance. Our security is found in God alone, period. We must know and believe this, that the Holy Spirit's seal locks in our faith. He assures us of our sonship, and he protects us of the forces of evil. He is the divine receipt of the payment in full on the cross. We're going to have trials, and we're going to have troubles, and we're going to suffer for the sake of the gospel in the name of Jesus Christ. But rest assured, nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. Absolutely nothing. No one was more secure in the love of God than John the Apostle. He's mentioned by name in every single gospel except the one that's actually named after him, that he himself wrote. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And at first, this may appear kind of arrogant, but when we take a deeper look at the five times that it occurs in the book of John, it's pretty clear that God is trying to teach us a few things. In Joanne Weaver's book called Having a Merry Spirit, there's a beautiful section that I want to read to you regarding the Apostle John. She starts off by saying after a uh, uh, speaking in an event in the South, she was walking a young woman to her car and she asked her, so what has God been saying to you lately? And the young woman responded, well, I've been realizing how much God loves me. But the most exciting thing is that I just feel like he loves me more than y'all. She quickly clarified that she knew God loved every one of us and that she didn't think she was better than anyone else. She says, but you know, I feel like I'm his favorite. Joanne Weaver says, her words quickened something in my heart. After completely stunning me with their innocent boldness, they awoke a longing inside of me for the same kind of assurance, the same confidence that not only lit her face, but her life as well. So Joanne asked her, how did you get that? I asked, wanting the same confidence, what happened that made you feel so secure in God's love? And the woman responded, she says, I think it began when I had my kids. Joanne Weaver goes on to describe, she says, I've thought about her words many times since that night, and I believe I'm beginning to understand what she might have meant. After all, the love born in a mother's heart at the birth of her child truly is unique, unconditional, sacrificial, intense, and personal as though there has never been another child in the universe like the child you now hold in your arms. A mother's love really is a reflection of God's love for us. But to have it translate so deeply into a confidence that makes one feel that we are God's one and only, wow. She says, I want to experience that kind of love. So she goes on to talk about how she and her siblings lived for a time with their grandmother. After her grandmother had passed away, her brother and her sister were sitting around sharing what their grandmother had meant to them. And the youngest brother says, you know, I feel kind of bad. I hope you guys weren't mad at me that I was her favorite. Well, the other sister said, well, what do you mean? I was her favorite. And then, of course, Joanne pipes in, no, I was her favorite. She said they all just stared at each other and started laughing, and, and, uh, and it was wonderful to experience such a depth of love and attention that all three of them would secretly consider themselves loved more than you all. She says, I think this experience might explain what happened to John, the disciple of Jesus. 
I've always found it odd how John refers to himself in the gospel he authored. Rather than using his own name, he refers to himself again and again as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Scholars have all sorts of explanations as to why John may have done that. But she says, I have a feeling it's because John had an encounter with Christ, much like the one my sweet Southern Belle described. A solid realization of just how personal and passionate God's love for each and every one of us really is. When you first read it, John's self-description may seem a bit haughty and self-absorbed. But as you continue reading, you realize there's only one main character in John's gospel, Jesus Christ. John disappears. Jesus is lifted up. When inserting himself in the scene seems necessary, instead of using earthly tags and descriptions such as I or me or even the third person John, the disciple refers to the one who loves him. After all, Jesus' love for him is the key to John's identity. Instead of defining himself, John lets Christ define him. And the incredible reality of Christ's acceptance goes so deep that it roots out all of John's insecurity and even concern over how other people might interpret his bold identification. I just feel like Jesus loves me more than y'all, John declares. But rather than diminishing the love Christ had for the other disciples, John's declaration increases the astounding possibility that Jesus might love the rest of us just as much. So much that we too will never be able to look at ourselves, let alone define who we are, the same way again. Isn't that the truth? This, to me, is the key. And it's, it's stated in, in, in 1 John 4.16 where he says, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. You see, the difference for John was that he practiced a working knowledge of the Savior's love for him. And rather than spend his time boasting of his love for Jesus or working to earn his love or, or working to love Jesus more, he learned to rest in Jesus' love for him. Great things would occur in the life of John because of the knowledge that he was deeply loved. Isn't it so true? Our love of, for God is it's just up and down, depending on if we're having a good day or a bad day. It's constantly fluctuating because we are, we are naturally emotionally driven. My prayer is that each of us would learn to see ourselves as the one whom Jesus loves more than y'all, resting close to his heart, prepared to be used for ministry, and receiving great revelation continually from the Lord. I preached a message many years ago, and I actually made paper buttons for the church to take home with them that said, he loves me more than you all. And I said, you're having a bad day, wear this on your, on your, on your clothing. And I know for a fact that a couple of people still have those buttons up on their refrigerators at their homes or taped up somewhere else in their house. It's such a wonderful reminder that we are each loved more than y'all. So now let's get into the word and take a look at the five times that it occurs in the gospel of John. The first occurrence where he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved was in the upper room in John 13, 23. The Bible says, now there was leaning on Jesus's bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. In the same place where Judas's heart was corrupted and Peter had shown weakness of his flesh, Jesus demonstrates his peace, his understanding, his compassion and intimacy, and his cleansing. 
It's a beautiful picture of our own position of intimacy in Christ, leaning on him, enjoying our fellowship with him as he gives us peace of heart and mind and insights into his own thoughts. Do you share that kind of intimacy with Christ? The second place where John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved was at the foot of the cross in John 19.26. The Bible says, When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. I see three things here. First, this is such a beautiful demonstration of Jesus' loving kindness and humanity. His empathetic nature of God for his children. In the very peak of his suffering, looking down from the cross, he made sure that his mom and his closest apostle were taken care of. Second, it really is true that perfect love casts out all fear. John was the only disciple other than Mary Magdalene who endured watching all of the torture and crucifixion of Jesus. It was incredibly dangerous for them to be in this location, but they were unafraid. And the third thing, of course, is it is finished. Jesus solved the problem of sin. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. What an overpayment. This is like you and I owing somebody $5 and a friend pays our debt and gives $5 trillion as the payment. And it's so much exponentially more in Jesus's case. He took the punishment for all of our sins, past, present, and future, future carried the wrath of God, and defeated Satan, hell, and death. Romans 3, 8, 3 to 4 says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did it by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemns sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Because of Jesus' obedience on the cross, God will never be angry with us again, and God will never condemn us again. The third place that John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved is in John chapter 20, verse 2. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. He outran Peter, got there first, and the Bible said that John saw and believed. This occurrence reminds us that we are now one with the buried and risen Lord. Leaving death behind forever, Christ entered into this new world of the resurrection. He solved the problem of sin by his death, he now rose as the great victor over Satan, sin, and death. He became the firstborn from the dead, the head of a new creation. Our old man was crucified with him. We died with him. We were buried with him. And with him, we were also raised to a new life. And God has even made us sit together in the heavenly places in him. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That, my friends, should give you a little extra bounce in your step today. The fourth and fifth times that John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved were both at the Sea of Tiberias. The first, John 21, verse 7. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. 
Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it and plunged into the sea. This was the third time that Jesus had shown himself to his disciples after being raised from the dead. And first, he gives them this amazing, outstanding, miracle catch of fish, 153 to be exact. Then he eats breakfast with them. I love it. A meal with the master. And what an encouragement this was for them. This is such a beautiful picture of the assurance of our risen Lord, that he will give us all provision while he's gone. And we must depend upon him because we can do nothing without him. But with him, all things are possible. We have much work to do to be fishers of men, but our God will supply all of our needs. And finally, the fifth time, also at the Sea of Tiberias, would be the final time that John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper, and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Our Savior's heart is personal restoration through his grace. In the Song of Songs, the scriptures describe Jesus' eyes like doves. I love to just close my eyes sometimes and see him looking at me this way, especially when I have failed or messed up or fallen. You see, the church has gotten it all wrong. We strive for righteousness through our own efforts to walk in holiness, which only leads to disappointment and failure and condemnation and shame. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. One of the most amazing displays of how Jesus restores is in the life of the Apostle Peter. You gotta love Peter. He's one of the greatest examples of open up mouth and insert foot. And he gives me such encouragement. How many times I have spoken out of order, or I have just said way too much, or how many times have I denied Jesus in one way or another, how many times I've tried to be something that I'm not, and walked in pride, showing off in my own strength. Come on now, let's be honest. In Luke 22, the Bible says immediately, while Peter was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and whipped, wept bitterly. What a look this must have been. Not a look that said, you wimp, look at how you failed me again. Of course not. I believe that look from Jesus said, Peter, hold on. You will return to me. And when you return to me, you will strengthen your brothers. I love you. I have to go through the cross for you. I am your peace and your salvation. Hallelujah. What a savior we have. The torture, crucifixion, and burial of Jesus would happen. But three days later, the restoration now begins. The women are at the tomb and the angel of the Lord instructs them, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. This would be the scriptures for all of us to read thousands of years later. He knew that Peter was dejected and ashamed. Peter needed to understand that although he had forsaken Christ, Christ had not forsaken him. He would first restore him in private and then publicly 
when he fed them fish on a charcoal fire, which I'm sure brought back memories to Peter of when he denied him around a charcoal fire. This was important for the other disciples to see as well, so they would support Peter in his leadership in the near future. So in this wonderful exchange on the beach, Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? And it was a wonderful play on the Greek words for love. Hmm, have you ever thought about that three times? Interesting. In this exchange, in essence, Peter recognizes and admits that he's not yet in love with him, nor fully committed. And without condemnation, Jesus continues to restore him. Now we are getting somewhere. A man broken of his pride, a man honest with the Lord for the first time, a man usable by God to do great and mighty things by the power of the Holy Spirit and not in his own strength, a man who failed yet received Jesus's restoration and love, a man humbled by the amazing grace and love of Jesus. That is our power. That is what makes us a usable vessel for the Lord. That is who our Jesus is. Of all the people in the world that Jesus could have used to be the first preacher of the gospel, he chose a man who failed him over and over again. What an encouragement for all of us. Jesus' heart, as told through these five occurrences, is that we would learn to have fellowship and intimacy with him, to stand with the crucified one with no fear, to live on earth in the power of his resurrection, to know and believe in his unfailing love and forgiveness, and to watch expectantly for his return while serving and working for him, trusting in his provision every step of the way. May you be blessed. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for joining us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Be sure to check out our online ministry, The King's Table, at www.eattheword.org, where you can connect with us on Facebook, check out our YouTube channel, and read our blog. Thanks again so much. Be blessed.